available wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the Baptist Broadcast. I'm your host, Joshua Summer. Today we have another Baptist Broadcast interview. Always fun to have those. We've got Pastor Steve Meister from Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sacramento, California, one of five elders there. And it's always good to have Steve on. This will be the second time having him on, and this will kind of be a lead-up to some of the things that will be discussed or or taught at the conference this year, August 9th and 10th, so just a few days away. Um, this particular subject, Biblicism, is not going to be broached so much at the conference, but will be related because the conference is on confessionalism. So if you're there, you're going to hear Dr. Jim Renahan, Dr. Sam Renahan, and Pastor Steve Meister give really good messages, hopefully. <laughs> no, I have I have full confidence they will give really good messages about um, uh, confessionalism and then the nature of confessionalism, what a confession is, the utility of a confession, uh, the biblical foundation of confessions and their use, and so on. This episode will kind of be in preparation to that because we're going to talk about Biblicism, which essentially relates to confessionalism in various ways. We'll talk a little bit about that in this episode, but the main thread that's going to tie everything together today is going to be the difference between Biblicism on the one hand and just being biblical on the other. Uh, Biblicism is not being biblical. And I think that's a confusion that uh, that remains in overall discussions today. And so we're going to hopefully try and bring some clarity to that. And uh, to do that, I have uh, Pastor Steve Meister joining me. So I hope you enjoy the interview. All right, we're back with Steve Meister. I, you know, I mentioned on the, uh, I don't know, should we do introduction? You've done an introduction on here before, but maybe you should, maybe just by way of recap, you should just walk through who you are and why you're here. Uh, I'm a pastor. I'm one of the pastors at Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sacramento, California, and um, privileged to minister the word there with my fellow brothers. Um, we're a confessional church subscribing to the Second London Confession, um, and been there now coming up on a decade there. So um, yeah, been gr- grateful to God for that. Wife and four kids. Anything else you want to know? I have a Twitter that's, account. That's about it. Um you have a window AC unit behind you that buzzes every once in a while. I've just learned. So that's, that's right. You know, I turned it off so you won't be thrown off. Are you, are you ready to come to our conference? Are you going to make it to that? Lord willing. That's the plan. Um, <laughs> in a couple of weeks, I can't promise you that at this moment I have talks that are talk worthy, but they Lord willing will be by the time the plane lands in uh, Missouri. Yeah. Yeah, you'll have a, a couple hours on there to finish up if you if you need them. So hopefully yeah. you don't have too bumpy of a flight or aren't coming through any Midwest thunderstorms on your way in. Oh yeah, that's right. The humidity. I keep remembering that. Why did you schedule this in August? That's when it's that's how it's always been in August. So I haven't changed it. <laughs> I haven't tried to, you know, I don't try to fix what's not broken. And so yeah, that's good. It's part of the reason why we still have our conference in the middle of the week. It's always been like that. Yeah. And I've kicked around moving it, you know, shifting it to a Friday, Saturday thing. But then I think, oh, it's kind of cool that pastors can get back to their churches and, mm-hmm. you know, all that. So it's 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 a, you know, there are people who do it both ways and I get it. It's it's a win-win, you know, kind of a pro-con thing. But yeah, um, I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, it's going to be good. It's going to be good. Um, biblicism. Let's talk biblicism. We, last time you were on, we talked confessionalism which which obviously relates to this in a lot of ways 
but mm -hmm. this <laughs> I uh texted you super short notice was it yesterday and I was like yeah. hey let's do a let's do a podcast if you if you're up for it and you were so that's good but we didn't have like a super detailed outline or anything like that I just thought you know kind of in preparation for the conference coming up which is going to be on confessing the faith um I thought this might be relevant kind of a nice little paver on the way to August 9th and 10th so Biblis, I think the first thing that I want to do, you know, and, and kind of the last time you were on here, it was about a year ago. And throughout that year, I think there have been a few things that have clarified for me, um, or at least I'm starting to understand, I think, part of why people are confused with criticisms of Biblicism. It's because of different ways in which words are used and whatnot. But I think maybe we should just start off by talking about the difference between biblicism and just being biblical, because I think that sometimes when people hear us saying something like, you know, um, biblicism is an abuse of God's word, or, you know, and we're criticizing biblicism, I think what people hear us saying is, you know, we're in favor of something other than being biblical. And so maybe it would just be helpful to kind of talk about the difference between those two things. And, and probably this involves kind of defining biblicism a little bit. Um, but what's the difference between those two things? Yeah. And that's a, a really good question. And, and for the average Christian, when they hear the term, it's going to be counterintuitive to think of it as a negative or pejorative because you hear biblicism being biblical is good, obviously, which we'd affirm. And the irony is that we would say that biblicism isn't biblical. Um, and I think it's maybe helpful, too, to just step back a bit and recognize that we're talking about a construct. And generally, whenever you're talking about some kind of ism, that's what you're doing, whether it's biblicism or Calvinism or feminism or liberalism or, you know, whatever, evangelicalism. It's not necessarily a thing. It's a group of ideas um, that you're trying to gather in a construct and identify in order to deal with principles and truth and to be discerning and to be biblical. And so we want to identify biblicism to be biblical. Um, and typically I think you can, I, you can, you can reduce it down to two basic elements uh, that biblicism is a rejection of what is necessarily contained in scripture, or um, it is a rejection of things that are not explicitly stated in scripture um, along with that. And, and very much related to that, um, uh, a rejection of the creedal confession, uh, the historical creedal confessional um, teaching and ministry of the church. And so that's, biblicism has been used as a pejorative for uh, back to the 1800s. Um, and so sometimes people today claim it's a, it's a new slur or it used to be positive. I don't think the, the facts bear, bear that out. It's been used as a pejorative historically. Although because we disagree on what scripture necessarily contains, um, sometimes it's a badge of honor. So if a, you know, if a Pado baptist for example, were to say that we're as Baptists or Biblicists, uh, we would agree in the sense that we don't think that Pado baptism is uh, warranted by scripture. It's not um, necessarily contained in what scripture teaches. So that's how I'd reduce it down to. I've sometimes used following um, Jim Renahan, uh, he's pointed out uh, D.B. Riker's definition, which is actually buried in a footnote in his uh, book on Keech, that it's a rejection of everything not explicitly stated in scripture, 
and the dismissal of the historic creeds and confessions of the church. Yeah, you know, it's 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 kind of interesting because you 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 began with, you know, we have to remember that biblicism is a construct and maybe a, a, another kind of bit of irony regarding biblicism is that it is a construct and it's an extra biblical one too <laughs> in the sense that the term the term that that signifies the concept is extra biblical biblicism and then and then so it ends up being like okay so it's just now it's just your it's it's it, it comes down to you just don't like the extra biblical terminology that i that i use but you're okay with your own yeah like like i was just talking to a guy uh recently you know who had in a presentation he gave he 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 sourced a bunch of material from different authors from the past while he was criticizing you know the notion of theological retrieval and it's like well in practice you're doing the same thing methodologically it's 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 almost just like you don't like who's being resourced or who's being retrieved so it's yeah yeah you know it's kind of like it, it to me it looks like you know they're doing all the same things that we are but it's a different version of it and then they're and then they're camouflaging it in like a kind of cloak of piety you know by using terms like biblicism and we're just truly being biblical and this is what it means to believe sola scriptura mm -hmm. and so on so so like if we're not biblicists but we want to be biblical you know when we when we talk about being biblical and we we relate that to you know creeds and confessions of faith are we still biblical even though we're using and relying on creeds and confessions of faith totally and i think that what it, when we reduce that down to its i think the the thing behind the thing what's what's the the substance of this of both biblicism and then uh, true confessionalism, his, the historic practice of the Christian church. And, and let's just throw that in that the um, American and Western rejection of creeds and rejection of confessionalism is the minority report in church history. So we're, we're the odd ones out. Christians have historically seen uh, fit to express their faith, what we believe the Bible means by what it says, in summaries and definitions outside of scripture to, our, to preserve the, the meaning and our convictions about what scripture teaches. And so um, confessionalism is a um, expression of a biblical, um, well, as Carl Truman put in his book, Creedal Imperative, a biblical imperative and expectation um, that the church, uh, that the, excuse me, that scripture functions in the church. And really what's missing in biblicism um, and what you, you see in the American experience, especially after the uh, 1800s, is um, the separation of the interpretation and reasoning from Scripture and doing theology, wherever you want to put it, from the church, from any pattern of ecclesiastical authority, mm -hmm. um, and recognizing the subordinate authorities that are implied and have always been understood by the Reformers, by the Reformation, uh, by the true historic meaning of Sola Scriptura. And basically what happened is we received Sola Scriptura through the lens and the, the caricature of it, not historically from the Reformation, but from uh, the American reinterpretation of it or Western reinterpretation through our uh, democratic, populist, individualist impulses. And so mm -hmm. when we hear Scripture alone, what we tend to think is Scripture isolated from the church, just me and the Bible alone. That's not what it's 
it's never meant that. Um, that's right. not the true intention of it. That's not what the Bible teaches. And so um, in that sense, it's it's unbiblical. And the practice of biblicism is an unbiblical um, approach to the Bible. Right. So that it's essentially like over the last century and a half, Americans taking something that may be politically good, um, you know, say something like democracy or something like that, and then like bringing that into most of the time inadvertently, probably, br but bringing that into theological methodology. And so then all of a sudden you have, well, uh, I have rights as an American. And so that mindset is not separated from or distinguished from Christian life. And so then all of a sudden we have this like severance of the individual from the institutional church mm -hmm. and and all the implications that that bears on one's theologizing. It's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so it is a, it's a modern problem. And, and really what we mean by biblicism, if we're going to be even more specific is individualism, mm -hmm. uh, a, a, a naive individualism and isolationism um, of, of reducing um, the irony of the modern um, caricature of soul scriptura is that it really makes the supreme judge not scripture but the individual mm -hmm. and scripture doesn't teach that um, we are called right. to be members of christ church we are called to be submitted to the various authorities how that functions within the congregation and the eldership and then you have associations of churches and then we stretch back through history and how we are to learn from those who have gone before us whose christ whom christ has gifted to the church there's all these layers of authority um none of them which are supreme or infallible only yeah. scripture is. And that's what right. we mean by sola scriptura. But they all have a function. And scripture is to function in that in ecclesiastical environment, if you will. And um, that's what's missing in the biblicist approach to the Bible. It's really an independence and an individualism that's unbiblical. Yeah. As we go through Matthew as a church, I'm realizing like Jesus's life with his disciples uh, is, well, actually, if you, if you, step more into the disciples shoes and and think like well there's never really an experience that a disciple has it, it's mm -hmm. it's almost all the time like even when even when after the resurrection jesus communes with his disciples um in john chapter 20 twice uh the first time thomas isn't there and the second time thomas is there thomas didn't commune with jesus the first time he wasn't with the rest of the disciples and then the second time he does. And he's, he's, so I think there's a definitely a significance to, um, you know, the corporate life of the church that's certainly downplayed and not even, not even really considered in, in the mm -hmm. modern mind. Um, it, it seems to step on our, you know, Western kind of American political, political, uh, sensibilities. And so, um, uh, we end up reading roughshod over how important the corporate life is in the scriptures. Um, and we, we ignore it. Um, That's exactly right. The second thing, uh, and that was kind of like a, maybe a little bit of a long way to answer the first, first question. What is the difference between biblicism and just being biblical? I think just to codify that we're not saying that we don't want to be biblical. We're, 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 we're actually saying, no, we want to be biblical and we want to realize, you know, uh, 
very important things in the scriptures that actually on a biblicist paradigm you can't realize um so secondly kind of gets to the consistency of biblicism and so someone who imbibes biblis biblicist tendencies or biblicism wholesale is it even really possible to be a biblicist and this kind of goes back to you know i'm trying to make this observation in terms of how people will um you know, criticize something like historical retrieval on the one hand, you know, going back to the tradition, what did other Christians say? And they'll criticize that. But at the same time, they're doing the same thing. Mm -hmm. And it makes me wonder, like, is it even really possible to be a biblicist consistently? No, I, I don't, I don't think it is at all. And I think that's actually an important point. And one of the reasons biblicism needs to be rejected is because it is impossible. Yeah. And I think in terms of pastorally and evangelistically why it's important to make this point because i actually i believe this is the road to rome and eastern orthodoxy for christians who are taught biblicism yeah uh, because they'll eventually realize that, that that's impossible um that there's no such thing as approaching scripture without a paradigm tradition or mm -hmm. received and then that makes them all the more susceptible to whether it's you know roman catholic or eastern orthodox or other apologists who give them their view of which we would reject of the um, of tradition as revelation and the authority of the church and the infallibility of the church and, and so on and become more susceptible to that. So I think it's important to recover yeah. properly, um, you know, this issue and a biblical idea of sola scriptura from the car modern caricature of biblicism in order to hold fast in, against right. various winds of doctrine and, 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 and matters. Um, and so to, I guess to your question um, of uh, um, is biblicism possible? No, because we all come to the Bible with tradition, with mm -hmm. that is things passed down to us. That's all tradition means. Uh, we have paradigms. Um, when we believe the analogy of if we believe the Bible is a word of God, we believe the analogy of faith. We believe that scripture interprets scripture. So um, concepts like the faith, the whole counsel of God, the standard of teaching, the pattern of sound words, we, we all have constructs that we bring to scripture as we read one passage in view of the whole. The question, right. of course, is whether it's warranted and can be substantiated uh, by scripture itself. So the practice of biblicism, though, is, is impossible. It, it's, it's denying what's real and what's all around us um, and leads to all sorts of, of malfeasance because of that. You know, I'm reminded of that all the more every time I look at a lexicon and when you look through a lexicon, all you see are our names like Aristotle, Plato. And and what the lexicon is doing, of course, is it's is it's recognizing how that particular term has been conditioned by the use of Aristotle and Plato and how we know what that term even means is by looking at these other literary sources that condition our cool. understanding of those terms. So I think, you know, in terms of the impressionable minds in the church, like let's bring it down to a local church level. So like I have what you mentioned, you know, that, that the kind of naive biblicism is a road to Rome for those who grow and they become inquisitive and they start asking questions and then they start hitting roadblocks on the Protestant side of things. And so they 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 think, well, the only avenue out of this is Rome or Eastern Orthodoxy, because right. they start to realize like, hey, none of this is this isn't consistent at all. 
And so the searching intellect is all is always going to to try and find a way around that. Um, and and so to to be able to address address this to you know the laity who is going to inevitably some of them are going to grow and they're going to start reading lexicons and they're going to start realizing hey like there's a lot you know in the puritans there's a lot of guys like referring to aristotle and plato and there's a lot of guys like talking about you know aquinas and anselm and you know what's that all about you know but we're we're sitting here in the 21st century saying no you can't do that you can't do that um so i i think it's something that's important to to drag out into the light and to say, Hey, you know, like the methodology of old has been where truth is, you know, we use it where we find it. We, we, we dig, we dig where we find it and, and we apply it, we use it uh, instead of saying like, okay, I have this, you know, kind of grid that I have to, that I have to follow. And if I don't follow it, then I'm not truly sola scriptura. You know, um, this kind of and it's an artificial grid. Ironically, again, you know, it's it's not totally biblical. It's it's a it's a construct, and that that brings us maybe to sola scriptura. I just mentioned it, so um, which would be, I think, the right understanding. I think biblicism is a um, kind of a uh, misuse or or perversion of the classical doctrine of sola scriptura so when it comes to sola scriptura truly understood which is a, a doctrine that you and i both confess and it's a doctrine that you know the people who are involved in this discussion uh on our side of things and and so on everybody confesses sola scriptura so if that's the case you know what is what is sola scriptura you know how how should we define it and then let's talk a little bit about how it's being defined, you know, right now in relation to biblicism. Yeah, very, that's a very important um, issue. And I'm borrowing from others. And I think this is a, a good analogy where just like we would qualify sola fide, so another Reformation sola and say, you know, um, faith alone does not mean that faith is alone in the sense that living union with Christ um, produces fruit in in a believer's life. Um, so we would make that qualification. So we don't um, misconstrue faith alone to simply mean um, a mental ascent or other, um, whatever mm -hmm. under the banner of e easy believism. In the same way, um, we would want to qualify sola scriptura and say that uh, scripture alone does not mean that scripture is alone. And we learn that in the Bible. Um, what we mean by sola scriptura and it, um, what we confess in the Second London Confession, chapter one, is articulating sola scriptura. I think probably the most um, uh, perceptive part or, or articulate part would rather would be paragraph 10 of that scripture is the supreme judge. And really, if you just want a simple definition, that's what sola scriptura means. What we're denying is the Roman Catholic view that the church is an infallible interpreter of scripture, namely the mm -hmm. Pope and Kortzer's debate. In, Romanist history, whether it's Pope or Council, um, but setting that aside, that the church functions as an infallible interpreter. And so therefore, by the church's decrees, is another stream of revelation, or that tradition is supplemental additives to the scriptures. And so what we're denying is that, and what we are affirming is that scripture alone 
is the infallible um, judge and touchstone for everything, all teaching, whether it's your pastor's sermon last Sunday, whether it's a creed, confession, counsel, uh, you know, opinions of ancient writers and other things that are articulated. So what we what is not being said, and so what we are not saying is that scripture is alone or isolated. That is that the Bible comes to us without pastors, without churches, without um, a historic stream of Christianity um, that is um, being illuminated by the spirit of God and led by our risen Lord Jesus. So we, we are receiving all of that. The Bible calls us to. And so the Bible, as it were, doesn't come to us alone. It doesn't drop to the individual Christian's feet on a Wednesday morning, and then they determine, um, you know, by themselves what it means and, and figure everything out. The Bible does not teach that. Um, rather, the scripture alone is the infallible interpreter. So what we're denying is that there's another human institution that can claim the authority that scripture has. That's, that's really what we're saying. Um, and that's in our confession. And so once people say confessions are, are you know, um, uh, opposed to sola scriptura, I'm like, well, well, first thing we confess is the supreme and infallible authority of scripture. And so in some ways, um, what would, uh, uh, just like Rome collapses justification and sanctification, we would argue that it fails mm-hmm. to distinguish those. Um, mm-hmm. Rome also fails to distinguish um, inspiration and illumination um, in terms of the spirit's ministry in the church. And so we are Sola Scriptura is re-clarifying that distinction and separating the two and saying, no, Scripture alone is inspired and no one else. Right. Yeah, that's that is a really helpful, uh, a really helpful distinction. And it kind of gets to the distinction between the Norma Normans and the Norma Normata Mm -hmm. and how you have the norming norm, which is Scripture uh, alone. And then you have the normed norm which is, you know, your secondary sources of authority. I don't want to say sources in the sense it's your secondary um, lines of authority, perhaps, which is like creeds and confessions, pastors. Um, you know, biblically, there's precedent for that, right? Like it, you have wisdom in a multitude of counselors. Mm-hmm. And so when you're considering like even Bible study to say that I'm just going to sit here and come to my own conclusions apart from any sort of counsel, uh, is to is to really deny that proverb, proverbial truth in Scripture that there's wisdom. There's much wisdom in a, in a multitude of counselors. Um, and so I, I've actually used that before in conversation uh, about this. That you know, like in Scripture, it's Scripture itself sows the seeds of a properly understood and a robust understanding of sola scriptura. That it would include, you know, uh, secondary and subordinate sources of authority. Um, uh, so, and then, so, so then to deny that is to actually go back ironically on your claim to sola scriptura or, or biblicism. Yeah. Um, and, and there's actually, there's a way that biblicism is ironically, um, sharing the same viewpoint as Roman Catholicism yeah. because it's actually claiming an autonomous interpreter. So you're actually right. claiming to yourself the autonomy uh, to decree uh, the meaning of scripture, which is the same thing that Rome claims. And right. so there's a there's a there's an ironic commonality in modern biblicism and Roman Catholicism. Yeah, you're just internalizing the visible hierarchy of Rome mm-hmm. to yourself. <laughs> right. It just becomes you you become you become the Pope or this or the one who has sole rights to uh, determine the meaning of this or that text. I want to get your thoughts on 
Sola Scriptura, and like if we think about Sola Scriptura as like an imperative for Christians, like it's uh, we are to understand that Scripture is the final or the highest authority. I think it also helps to consider who that's addressed to. So is that addressed to the church at large or is that just addressed to the individual? Because what happens is you have the individual that says, I'm sola scriptura, you know, I believe in sola scriptura. And what that means for them is apart from anybody else, you know, I'm just going to take to my own Bible study and come up with my own theological conclusions apart from any sort of accountability. But if sola scriptura is the church's doctrine and if it's addressed to God's people in general, which I think it is, then at that point, you kind of have a necessary structure of accountability that, that has to go along with that confession. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Soul Scripture is an ecclesiastical doctrine. Um, it's in, in, It is stating something about how the church resolves um, both controversy and also just develops doctrine and, and teaching, both to guide and to guard the church. Um, and it doesn't have a uh, individual. There's no. There's no context for. And it, well, the reformers explicitly rejected it when it showed up in the radical reformation of sort of an individualistic cutting ourselves off, reading the Bible as if no one's read it before, which is what Alexander Campbell said, um, and cutting ourselves off from um, how the Spirit has um, illuminated the meaning of Scripture to. Um, Christians down through the ages, and I think you're you're pointing out the wisdom of of multiple counsel uh, counselors is exactly our answer to um, the claims of Rome or others that you know this is this leads to just anarchy and and chaos. Um, no, that's why we have the communion of the saints, and we benefit even down through the ages. And so then that makes those doctrines where there's been. Uh, consensus through the church all the more important we order them we order them properly but i but i think how you articulate josh i would wholeheartedly agree and um it just what what we need to really recover and what's very difficult for us um in our context socially politically and culturally and i and i'm not a ashamed american i'm love being American. So there's no kind of self-loathing there, but we have to recognize that we come with cultural predilections that butt against authority, um, that butt against community. um, And all of those are presupposed values in which the Bible operates um, Mm -hmm. and that we don't. um, And and even just with the advancement of technology, private, but there's a, I think there's an interesting uh, overlap in that the development of uh, cheaply available personal Bibles and populism and democratic individualism happen kind of at the same time. And so mm-hmm. that helps aid the spread of that. The fact that I can actually take a Bible home and sit in a room and read it by myself, something that most Christians throughout history didn't do. Um, it didn't have access to um, the fact that I can do that, which is a good thing, not arguing against that, but the fact that I can do that, um, I've got to check how my own um, cultural predispositions to independence and isolation, um, how that might make me think I can then, steward or embody myself um authority and i I can't i'm called to uh submit to a community a congregation uh to an eldership and and then so on down through the stream of of history right like the first amendment's great because my church gets to worship how we as a congregation uh feel we should worship according to conscience but 
it's 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 not great if you take that right and transfer it to yourself in relation to God and his institution mm-hmm. if that makes sense so it's just it's just a failure to make the distinction and again you're talking about the cultural you know predilection that's something that we often engage in without any sort of you know it's not like we're sitting in a dark room thinking about how to you know uh transfer my civil politics into my science of theology but yeah, it just right. kind of with a lack of care and uh, discernment kind of starts to happen. Uh, and you, you take 150, 200 years of that and you get to kind of the situation that we're in now. Um, and so maybe I think I want to mention something a little bit about tradition um, just briefly before we move on to the fourth, the fourth consideration here, which we're going to look at the kind of the authority of confessions, but this is going to set us up for that and creeds. We'll look at the authority of creeds and confessions. But when, so a, a lot of people, when they hear the word tradition, uh, their their flags go up. And I know that just from having personal conversations and and having to qualify what I mean by the word tradition. But I think many Christians have been taught that like all tradition is bad. And or at least that's an assumption that's been made. And one thing that I try to that I try to qualify is like, well, the reason there was a teaching against tradition, and it wasn't tradition generally, it was a specific form of tradition in the Reformation, was because it was thought on the part of Rome that there was another source, authoritative source uh, for tradition alongside the scriptures whereas the, the the protestant or the reform mindset would be such that the there's still tradition but that tradition is is sourced out of god's word when we're talking about the articles of the faith and so it's not like a a parallel source or a parallel stream of thought that has to be communicated to you from an alternate source it's a, an outgrowth of the raw data of scripture that happens over time with, we you know the consideration, contemplation, commentary, formulation of creeds and confessions, and so on. Um, so I just I just wanted to, you know, maybe if you have any thoughts about that before moving on to the the this fourth consideration here, but I think that's a really important distinction to make with regard to to tradition. Absolutely, and I think we would just say to maybe make it very simple. Tradition does not have inherent authority. Tradition's authority always has to be warranted by scripture. Um, And we also make a distinction between how we learn something versus why uh, we hold to it. So I receive by tradition through the church, the doctrine of God's triunity. I receive sola scriptura. I didn't think up sola scriptura with a really good quiet time one day. That's been hammered out on the anvil of controversy and been received down through the ages. Yeah. Now, why I hold to it and as true is warranted by scripture and by the biblical arguments that even come down to us by tradition. And so I yeah. think those kind of having those categories, and I've just, just in ordinary experience with your average Christian, haven't been taught that or thought that way. But once we just lay out what we affirm and deny and making the distinction, I mean, we're doing the very things that's frankly on the page of the New Testament tradition is used negatively in reference to the Pharisees and um, others, Colossians 2, Paul mentions that man-made tradition and tradition is used positively uh, mm-hmm. to refer to what's been passed down in the apostolic deposit. 
So we're doing the same thing. We're making the distinction there. And we would just say tradition is not inherently authoritative, um, but it um, it's inescapable. Everything's mm-hmm. passed down to you. Um, it, but why we hold on to something is true. It has to be warranted by the word of God. That's an excellent distinction. Um, I've, I've often thought about how just in my own Christian experience, like I never like when I became when I first became a Christian, it's not like I sat down with the Greek New Testament and hammered out the doctrine of the Trinity on my own. You know, you don't even think about it because it's so intuitive. Like this is what this is what Christianity is. You don't deny the Trinity in Christian. That's just how it is. And so you just receive it. Um, you know, another thing would be something similar to that would be uh, the gospel justification by faith alone, the incarnation to some extent. Not all the vocabulary will be there, but the assumptions will be there. Mm-hmm. And it's not like you it's you don't reach those assumptions because you've done all your homework beforehand. You've been taught those things, you know, by trusted pastors or friends. And by the grace of God, you come to believe those things. And then, and then from there on out, it's just coming to a stronger conviction and a better ability to articulate those things as you spend time in the scriptures and as you sit under sound preaching or, or go to seminary or, you know, whatever. Um, so that's a really good, that's a really good point. And, and everybody should be able to agree with that. I don't know a single person who became a Christian and started questioning the doctrine of the Trinity and felt the need to go back and chisel it out themselves through the stone of the Greek New Testament. I just, nobody's done. I've never met anybody. Have you ever met anybody that's done that? I have. They're heretics um, <laughs> and, and, and yeah. apostates. So not yeah. actual yeah. genuine faith. No, uh, no, I've never met that because it, it right. is, it is part of, you know, Romans six seventeen, the standard of teaching to which we've been committed by the grace of God. Uh, one of the fruits of new life is actually, I think, receiving the truth of God's word and even through yeah. the means by which he gives it. And once you open an English Bible, and if it has uh, the fact that you have the Bible in English, the fact that you have what we believe is the true canon, the Protestant canon, um, yeah. if it has any kind of cross-referencing and, and anything else, let alone study notes, you have entered tradition. Yeah. Um, now, that's not why we, we're not making the Roman Catholic argument that says we believe it's the Bible because the church tells us. But we have received it by the medium of the church. And there's been arguments that have had even had in history about why we translated it into the vernacular language and why Christians should read it. Those are all your as soon as you open your Bible, you are standing on the shoulders of theological argument and even controversy Mm -hmm. that has gone before you and you're the beneficiary of it. Right. Right. So like even if you like if you have all the different the different viewpoints when it comes to canon, you know, like or or preferred versions of the Bible, like if you're a King James onlyist, you definitely have to imbibe some form of tradition there, you know, because mm-hmm. you're you're just receiving the validity of the English translation, you know, um, as it's been passed down um, through the English tradition in particular. But if you're not King James onlyist and you hold to some kind of form of textual criticism, then you have the manuscript tradition and you have, you know, the you know source criticism and text criticism and all of the tradition that's led us up to where we are now with regard to that um and so it's it's really just inescapable um mm-hmm. which makes goes back to the 
the uh, the second thing we were looking at is you know biblicism is not really possible to to hold to consistently uh, it breaks down at some point uh last thing i would like to do is just kind of talk authority of creeds and confessions this is another one that i think a lot of people have questions about you know well if i say there's some some people will say and, and when i say some people and i use that expression i you know, these are brothers in the Lord. I, I make that assumption and we have disagreements. I think many of them are, are dear brothers. Um, but some of those brothers might say, uh, you know, if you grant any authority to a creed or to a confession, you've relinquished a consistent, you know, belief in sola scriptura. And I think some of that comes from misunderstanding the nature of the authority of a creed or a confession. And so let's get into that a little bit. You know, what, what's well, your thoughts on authority as it applies to, you know, these, these subordinate documents? Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's helpful just to draw the analogy with the authority of a, a sermon on a Lord's day. Um, that is, and, and I've yet to meet a Christian. Well, there's falsely so-called, but genuine Christians who are just reject that outright, you're mm -hmm. receiving a, a subordinate authority. A man is getting up in his own words and he's articulating to you, um, hopefully the true meaning and intention of what the Bible says. We receive it for our growth and edification and conversion of souls and all the use that God has of, of preaching, of good preaching. Um, in the same way, really just to reduce it down to this most simple elements, the creeds and confessions of uh, the churches and of, of the Church of Christ uh, uh, universally and historically is the church preaching to us. Um, mm -hmm. And the, really the distinction is the, cons the consensus and the agreement that's behind it. Now, creeds are somewhat different because they, they come to us through the conciliar history and Christians have rallied around it. They've been reaffirmed over and over again for centuries. It's what it means to frankly be a Christian. Um, and, uh, and then confessions, especially flowered, um, you know, uh, during and after the Reformation to distinguish um, different, uh, you know, traditions, different um, viewpoints ecclesiastically um, amongst the churches and the Reformed churches. And so the confessions then articulate what our church believes and teaches. Um, and so it's, um, it, it's to be warranted by Scripture. Um, it doesn't have the authority of Scripture. Um, it's, but it is articulating what we believe the Bible means by what it says. Um, and so it's just learning at the feet of those who have gone before us. Um, and it is, it is, again, that's an escapable being self-consciously doing that is not rejecting the authority of scripture. Mm. That is just articulating and, um, walking in the, the lines that scripture gives us that we are to follow the pattern of sound words, second Timothy, that we're to hold to the faith. Well, that raises the question, what's the faith? Well, here's, right. here's our confession. Here's our, um, here's our statement that articulates that. That's all we're, we're trying to do. Um, the converse of that, and I think this is something that's really, really important, and I hope just or try to appeal to ordinary Christians to see that the irony here. Um, inevitably, when someone is coming from a biblicist viewpoint, what goes along with that? Be a biblicist and come listen to my teaching, my podcast, my videos, my church, and I will teach you how to be a biblicist. Right. Well, just right there, what you actually have is an independent tradition that's interjecting themselves um, into uh, the communion of the saints. And, and that's really what um, 
I think needs to be pointed out that when you're being when you're truly confessional in the historical sense, you're just being self-conscious about what every Christian is called to do. The question is whether we're, we're we are being we're articulating it um, self-consciously and, and truly. So um, and and get, and recognizing the church's authority to both guide and guard Christians in the truth. Um, that and that's how confessions function. I mean, there's a lot more to say about that, but that's the that's the basic root of the matter. So basically, you know, when someone says be a biblicist, and by the way, here's what that means, and here's how you apply that, they're becoming like a Pope Pius. I am tradition. <laughs> it's like they, yeah. they they've collapsed all authority into themselves, and they're basically saying, don't listen to those guys, you know, doing retrieval, which means listening to the voices of the past listen to me. I'm your tradition. Um, yeah, that's, um, of, of course that would be denied. Nobody would, would say that that's what's going on, but in all practicality, that's what's going on. Um, yeah. And I could give you countless stories of, of churches in the, in a, in a biblicist framework where, uh, there's 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 rules that the Bible study leaders can't contradict anything the preaching pastor has ever taught. That you know all things have, and what you're in doing is just creating a microcosm of a confessional tradition. But it's it's um, unstable. It's mm -hmm. tied to an individual. Uh, it's impossible often uh, to be verified or not because it doesn't have an, a clear articulation. It's inconsistent. You know, so on. We could give all the the negatives for it and. All we're saying in a confessional frame is we're going to put that all on paper here out front and we're confessing it, by the way, with Christians in the past and embracing also the creedal tradition, which is what um, those of us who are in the Westminster tradition, the Westminster and the second London, we embrace Nicaea, we embrace Chalcedon in our own standard. Um, mm -hmm. And we're just we're just putting out front and sort of um, truth and advertising, for lack of a better word. Um, versus a, 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 a more biblicist mindset. So two things. I, I want to circle back around to, you know, we're we're basically we're committing outwardly to a doctrinal position, which I, th I think is a very unpopular thing, and and it's something that I think many don't want to do because it commits them to a particular position. So it's convenient to have this kind of subjective, almost. I just go over the Bible tells me, and that might be different on Tuesday than it is from last Thursday. So I want to come back to that here in a little bit, but um, you mentioned the ecclesiastical nature of confessions in particular. They're churchly documents. Broadly speaking, creeds are the same way, but it's pretty much, you know, all Christians. But when, when you're talking about confessions, those are more centralized to things like uh, associational churchmanship and local churches. Uh, and I th one of the things that I see when engaging this issue publicly is that confessions, like biblicism kind of points everything to the individual, I think the same kind of mindset is involved with one's understanding or, or the understanding of many with regard to confessions, that this is something that I adopt, and this is something I get to pick and choose in terms of what I accept from it. And so then they begin treating the confession that way as well. When these are, these are churchly documents, so these are ecclesiastical documents, and to be adopted, you know, uh, by the local church or by church associ associations, formal or informal. Um, 
So maybe speak a little bit to that. I think it's really important that we understand that the confession is a churchly document. Again, it's not pri- primarily addressed to the individual. It's primarily addressed to to the church. Right. Well, confessions are just uh, a means by which the church um, functions in the way Scripture calls it to do. So we're called to affirm Christian in baptism mm-hmm. and membership, which means we are to have to have some measure of judgment of whether their confession and profession of Christ is genuine and what mm-hmm. standard by which do you measure that? Uh, well, we'd say the Bible, of course. Well, but what does that mean? What, what does the Bible mean by what it says? So confession answers that question. Uh, the church is to discipline uh, people in their teaching and to protect from and to put out false teachers. Well, how do we know whether teaching is orthodox or not? Well, the confession answers that is our answer to that question. Uh, the same thing when we um, install officers or ordain pastors, um, the confession is functioning in that environment um, and is is the way the church inhabits um, the authority of scripture and the way it practices it and is articulating it. Um, and it's doing every church. So the things I just listed, every church that has any concern for what the Bible teaches about itself is going to do all those things. Um, but if you're doing it outside of a confessional standard, um, it's going to be haphazard. It's not going to be consistent. And we're going to say it's not going to be faithful. Um, in its in its um, outworking of these things, of these practices that we're called to to live, to uphold the the gospel, and to live according to it in the world, and so um, that's that's what a confession is doing in a church, and that's how it functions. Um, now, of course, if if someone is in a confessional environment or a confessional church rather, and they become persuaded that the confession is wrong in any certain point, well, then there's a process that. Um, there to go to respecting again the bounds of that communion and that that community and that's not you know writing blog posts getting up and preaching incendiary sermons and and trying to tear down their own, your own confessional standard which is a, sadly how most people approach it yeah. rather what you're called to do is go through the process maybe you'll persuade the church that this part of the confession needs to be revised or rejected um, um, but at the point where you decide where there's just the church's holding to its standard, we still are convinced that the Bible teaches and you're outside. Well, then, then we have a choice to, um, uh, you know, leave that communion, go somewhere else. There's all sorts of you know ways working out the details, but, um, but suffice to say, what we're saying is that the confession is just articulating how the church is going to, um, uh, live and make the decisions that the church is called to do by scripture. And the confession is making that plain and clear. Um, and, and in, in an age, that is so concerned about authoritarianism and abuse, uh, frankly, biblical historic confessionalism should be a breath of fresh air, a mm. welcome respite from the um, shifting sentiments and power moves of men, frankly. Yeah. 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 That's, that's, that's the truth. I know it is for me. Um, you were, you had mentioned uh, earlier that, you know, there is a, and this is what I said earlier, I wanted to circle back around to, there's this function of a confession that says, this is what we believe. And in the case of the 17th century Reformed confessions, they are in relation to what we are used to in the 21st century statements of faith and things like that. The The 17th century confessions seem very robust and specific. And so I think what happens a lot of times is there's this inconvenient reality that if you publish this that you're committed to this confession there's this there's this idea that okay now you've committed and so in our day and age where it's very popular to 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 urge every individual to like 
get in the Greek and constantly question the received theological positions that have been passed down throughout history. Um, and that's even encouraged in seminaries to some extent. Um, always be questioning everything. It's kind of like this skepticism that's seeped into our our way of doing things. I would imagine it's a very it's a very uncomfortable truth that confessing a confession um holds you to a particular doctrinal standard uh it provides a measure of churchly accountability but i but i also think that's something that our that our society kind of shuns that that notion of committing because we want the freedom to be able to kind of ride in flux on our theological positions it exists a lot in analytical philosophy and analytical theology you 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 uh you know what i'm talking about but the uh it seems like that's that's i wouldn't say that's what keeps everybody from a confessional position but it it certainly has to play a part i think in large part for why people won't commit oh absolutely i mean we're let's be honest we're instinctively anti-authoritarian uh we butt against it um and and we ought to know if as if, if we're going to be confessional in our churches we're swimming upstream um, against the instincts of of our culture, um, it's going to require careful explanation. And just know that we're once we're in our position, we're already on the back foot. The biblicist yeah. sounds like, oh, he's a for freedom, he's for liberty, he's for all of these things. The confessional guy is dour, crusty, you know, yeah. uh, you know, trying yeah. to constrain your your um, individual freedom and conscience and all these sorts of things. And it just requires patient, careful explanation as to what we're doing, why we're doing it, how how actually all these things are inescapable for anyone, and Mm -hmm. that we're trying to be just clear and careful and consistent with the church down through the ages in doing it. And so just once you do that, I've I've found that people get it. Um, It just, it does take that explanation for sure. Right, right. Well, man, I think we've kind of hit my time limit here. Um, I'll let you get back to work and I'll get back to work. Thanks for coming on again and uh, yeah, absolutely talking biblicism. I'll, I'll I'll plug one more time the conference. It's coming up August 9th and tenth. Um, so just here in the next within the next couple of weeks, um, Steve Meister is going to be there. He will be one of the speakers giving two messages along with uh, uh, doctors Jim and Sam Renahan. Uh, and I confirmed earlier that Steve goes to the doctor, but he's not a doctor. <laughs> That's right. Um, so it's, you know, the the advert came off like, come here, doctors, Jim and Sam Renahan. Oh, yeah. And Steve Meister is going to be there, too. So I guess that's OK also. <laughs> well, that's as it should be. And I would just say on behalf of my brothers, Jim and Sam, whom I greatly respect and appreciate, that's as it should be. Everything has been advertised <laughs> properly. I'll be there to make them look good, hopefully. Yeah, and hopefully I can announce y'all a- accurately and uh, and um, introduce everyone um, accurately and uh, make y'all look good. But you know, part of the reason I'm not speaking is I'd rather keep myself out of it and let you guys go. And and uh, so I'm praying that that's a fruitful conference. And if you're hearing this or or watching this, you know, consider coming. And if not, there's always next year looking to uh, try to do this every year um, if the Lord blesses. So anyway, brother, thanks a lot. We'll see you. And uh, for all the listeners, we will we will catch you next time. God bless. See you, Josh. God bless you.